Musical stylings for ITP, aka In the Pocket, are provided by Graphic Millet. His music is available where fine music is sold. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.com captivate.fm or search in the pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at in the pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. This is a special episode of in the pocket. Have you heard of a director's cut? Well, this is a writer's cut. This is a writer's cut of an article published in the June 2023 issue of Down East Magazine. My editor for this episode's script is Donna Eckert. You will hear commentary from Lisa Lutz of Castine Historical Society and Caleb Jackson of Maine Coast Heritage Trust. I hope you enjoy. Arriving at Esther and Emanuel. The 137-mile journey to Castine from Portland promotes a headspace of the present colliding with the past. The sun is warm and bright. The car hums with adventure. Beautifully maintained federal and Georgian buildings line the peninsula at the confluence of the Penobscot and Bagaduce rivers. Rounding the corner of C Street, it is simple to imagine 18th century life while juxtaposing it with the present day. It is as if this beautiful drive of tidal coastal shores, pristine water reflecting blue sky, streets lined with majestic elms provides a canvas for the paint coated feet of my ancestors to run about in my mind. These footprints coalesce ebb and flow as imagery of American history is being revealed with each mile of the drive. I'm here to see Esther and Emmanuel, newly renamed islands in the Bagaduce, and uncover what I can about the people they were named for. Wherever the actual Esther and Emmanuel came from, their travel would not have been along this land but entirely by sea, fitting that their names have come to rest on a place inaccessible by roads, the former Upper Negro and Lower Negro Islands of the Bagaduce River. The town of Castine chose Esther and Emmanuel from a slate of proposed names and submitted them to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names for final approval. The town has overall been conscientious about renaming the islands, known since the earliest deeds recorded 
1790 as Upper and Lower Negro Islands. The island's owners have all been white. The mystery of why they were named Negro has been lost, or depending on who is recounting the mystery, unacknowledged or erased. As a black person who is a descendant of American chattel slavery, I cannot help but focus on the erased option, or at best, the unacknowledged version. Approximately 20 years after the first permanent settlement of Castine, Esther and Emmanuel appear in the account books of Colonel Gabriel Johannot of Penobscot, dated from 1785 to 1790. They are listed as Matthias Rich's girl and Richard Honeywell's Negro man. It is more than reasonable to surmise that the girl and man were not free, but enslaved. During this time, Maine was still part of Massachusetts. And while Massachusetts had abolished slavery in 1783, manumission was gradual versus the instant release of emancipation. Manumission happens when slavery remains sanctioned by law, while emancipation occurs when slavery is declared illegal. Reading between the lines of the account book, free people, people with rights, have last names. Esther and Emmanuel do not. A last name is a family name, signifying that individuals belong to a group and therefore society. It acknowledges that you are human, that you belong, that you have a history worth remembering, that you are worthy of leaving a breadcrumb along the trail of life. A breadcrumb that when found, encourages an opportunity to be remembered, identified, and acknowledged. It is no accident that enslaved people's family names were not noted. The Place Justice Initiative in Maine is a statewide, truth-seeking, historical recovery initiative of the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations. It seeks to engage Wabanaki and Maine communities in examining and understanding the ways in which racialized and indigenous populations are represented in or absent from the names given to our natural and built environment. Attending Place Justice Initiative events, I often hear it mentioned that the general public must be dealt with cautiously when new names are proposed for places. The general public must not be offended. They must be gently exposed to new ideas. No one but myself in the room seem to acknowledge or realize that general public must be code for white people. Any offense in the existing names to marginalized folks has been allowed to exist for decades or centuries unquestioned. So these people are clearly not part of the general public. Even well-meaning white people of today, ones who gather and conscientiously consider changing offensive place names do not implicitly consider black people a part of the general public with their words. I file this fact away on the list of codes for races that I began when I realized that urban is white people's code for black people, people of African descent, not people who live in urban areas. The code for these people are black in the 18th century was not giving last names, 
when Esther and Emmanuel were made note of in Colonel Johanan's account ledger, the Constitution of the United States considered a black person as three-fifths of a person. The three-fifths compromise. This institutionalized dehumanizing has been felt by black people systemically, whether in 18th century or the 21st century. It often occurs casually, unintentionally, when you are otherwise unsuspecting, and so frequently that it mostly goes unacknowledged. We are urban, even in the suburbs. Our experiences are not considered as part of the general public. Our names are not recorded. Knowing that the town of Castine chose black enslaved people instead of native tribal people for island namesakes is interesting. Perhaps a first step towards labor acknowledgement to go alongside land acknowledgements, which have become more common. Maine has made great efforts in recognizing the original inhabitants of the beautiful coastlines, prolific lakes, and roaring rivers by including land acknowledgement statements to the Maliseet, Micmac, Penobscot, and Passamaquoddy tribes, collectively known as the Wabanaki, at the beginning of government meetings and community events alike. This trend is relatively new, yet widely welcomed, and as such, it may have been more expected for the residents of Castine to choose native names for the islands of the Bacadouce. By selecting the names of enslaved people from the first written documentation of its black inhabitants, Esther and Emmanuel, the citizens of Cassine are acknowledging that black labor was present. There are many reasons, some justifiable and some less so, that current residents of Maine might use to object to changing offensive place names. One argument raised against changing the names of Negro Islands was that the islands were tied to the Underground Railroad, and renaming them would nullify that connection to the historic Trail to Freedom. This theory of the islands being a part of the Underground Railroad has been debunked. The islands were named Negro before the Underground Railroad began in 1810. Furthermore, the trail in Maine went from Portland through overland routes to Canada. And lastly, Castine did not have a strong abolitionist representation. Because definitely the oral tradition was that they were named that because they were stopped on the Underground Railroad. And that, you know, that was the feel-good story that was being told in town. Um, after the history was long lost, there was no one left who, and, you know, who remembered why it was called that. So I, my guess is sometime in the, you know, mid 20th century, someone said, Hey, I bet it was a stop on the underground railroad. And, and it went off from there. I tried to research abolition in our town, uh, because obviously you have to have abolitionists to be involved in the underground railroad. And... I didn't find any very little evidence of them even talking about abolition. It just was, I, I like, I call it the elephant in the room. Uh, it, you know, it, every newspaper of the time, every paper you picked up 
would be talking about what was happening in the South, about slavery, about abolition, or, you know, the whole controversy, whether it was pro or con, it, was, it wasn't like it wasn't known by everybody in town. The majority of people in town have either relatives living in the South because they're involved, they've moved there for the, the trade, um, to be like opening up um, trading firms for cotton, or these slave, these um, these uh, ship captains are going back and forth to all these southern ports, and they're writing back to their wives, and they're not mentioning anything, nothing, and and that just seemed odd to me, and I I just feel it's because they knew that when slavery ended, the economy would crash. And that's exactly what happened uh, because cotton trading stopped in the Civil War and all of our, our ships were sold. We had to, Castine, the um, uh, families that owned the ships had to sell them um, and they really never recovered after that. What should instead be accepted is that these islands were examples of marginalization, signifying displacement rather than refuge. Karen Franquier of Casting Kayak Adventures, who guided me over the waters to Esther and Emmanuel, recalls that it was common knowledge that wealthy slave owners would put their enslaved servants on the island. Labor needed to be nearby, but black labor needed to live outside of the view of townspeople. Lisa Simpson Lutz, executive director of Casting Historical Society, did research that indicates that when inland place names had Negro as the descriptor of a land feature, for instance, Negro Hill, these places were thought uninhabitable or in undesirable areas of town. These locations were essentially marked as not for the general public. It is then logical that islands with that descriptor are excluded directly by natural features and indirectly by the physical presence of black bodies. In my research, uh, we I felt anyway and, and argued that this was a place where recently freed enslaved people in our community were placed. It was, nobody wanted to live on an island in, in the uh, late 18, you know, late 1700s. That was not, desirable land and there is evidence uh, all all throughout that as uh, enslaved people are freed that communities would place them in undesirable locations outside of town but still close enough that they could use their labor and so that's my best uh, hypothesis Although excluded from town life, Esther and Emmanuel were not the sole black people living in Castine. In fact, Castine in 1840 had nearly a 1% black and mulatto population, a number three times greater than Maine's overall black and mulatto population. Why could this be? Castine was a town that had a prosperous mercantile demographic due to its salted cod raw cotton, and salt trade. It assumed that the black families there sustained themselves as sailors and domestic help. Sailing was one of the only occupations where equal pay existed for the races. 
It is ironic that black men were considered worthy of equal pay only when they were directly involved in perpetuating the slavery economy. Castine was a wealthy town and prospered during the national expansion and reform era of 1815 to 1880. The formerly enslaved and free black peoples located in Castine were still involved in the institution of slavery, just like the rest of the seafaring community. Slavery remained an international business with Europeans owning plantations in the Caribbean. The sailors trade cycle was to bring ships loaded with salted cod to southern ports as far as New Orleans and the Caribbean to feed the enslaved plantation worker population. Then the ships were packed with raw cotton produced by enslaved workers and sailed to textile mills in Liverpool, England. Once emptied in England, the ship's hulls were filled with salt mined outside of Liverpool to sell to fishing fleets in Castine. Casting fishermen used the salt to preserve their hulls of cod. Once the fish were salted, the trade cycle would repeat. Who were some of the black people living in Castine as a result of this trade? The records are faint, but traces remain. Jabin and Judy Niles were early black residents of Castine, with records dating back to 1803. Their names were in consideration for the islands. This family was unusual for the time because they were the only blacks not recorded as living with a white family. They are the first recorded African descent American family living independently in Castine, as noted in the 1820 census. The Niles family were extremely poor as they are listed in the Castine pauper records and lived in a house on a wharf, which would not have been well insulated and hard to keep warm in a Maine coastal winter. The wharf and the island share a common theme of keeping the black labor force marginalized to the outskirts of town. Although not enslaved, this black family's records are incomplete, perhaps signifying that despite their independence, they were still not considered fully human their identities still classified by the three-fifths compromise. When all slaves were black, it was unlikely for white people to see even a free black person as a full-fifth citizen like themselves. In early Castine, only one black resident owned land and voted. He was a sailor named William DeFleet, and his name was considered for the upper and lower islands. Unlike many black residents of Castine, it is known where and how DeFleet lived. He owned land in both Maine and California and was by that account successful. I love the DeFleets. Um, so this, the man, and I can't think of his first name right now, but I, I will look it up, uh, uh, just sort of appears in, and I think he was a sailor. Um, you know, that there were a lot of black sailors. It was a very lucrative profession for them. And, um, it was a profession where they were completely accepted. And so he appears in the casting census. He marries, he starts having a family. All the kids go to school. Um, and then they all start disappearing. Um, and this is always the hard part is where are these people going? 
Uh, his wife dies. I remember that. His wife dies. I think maybe some of his children must move on. I can't, I wasn't able to find them. And um, I was able to trace him to San Francisco, where he was a sailor out in California in San Francisco. And um, he, he is the only African-American resident who owned his own property. He was a registered voter. Uh, he paid a poll tax right around 1840s, maybe. And so, um, you know, we have, you know, we had African-Americans, but they appear to be renters. Um, they, they were not appearing in the poll tax records or in the real estate tax record. But, and I think his name was William. William DeFleet did. So, um, and as he, when he went out to San Francisco, same thing. He continued to vote and he continued to own property. So really interesting family. Where did he come from? I don't know. I haven't been able to trace him before. And uh, his one daughter stays in town for a while, Emmeline, as a servant, uh, and then she disappears. So my hope is that she marries and moves and starts a family somewhere else, and I just can't trace her. Was his name not selected because he did not remain on the land until his death? or because he was not the first documented black person on the land. Maybe his name was not selected because his existence was already recorded. He had a breadcrumb trail in paper from paying voting poll tax and real estate tax. He has a first name and a surname. It's a different style of erasure, that of black people blessed with the success that enslaved black people could only dream of during a time of gradual manumission, but still a part of history that is underrecognized and seldom told. Is it more important to bring to light the most unrecognized? It can be true that acknowledging individuals unpaid labor is prioritized over accepting success of those formerly enslaved and their descendants who were not domestic servants. Defleet's history was not rooted in the end to the island, but it is rooted to the history of Castine's historically significant sized black community. The records of why the black demographic eventually declined in Castine could be related to new migration patterns following the Civil War and Reconstruction era, the war disrupted traditional trades to weaken Southern states that left the Union. It is also possible that white communities feeling the loss of family members and business profits from the Civil War could have increased hostilities towards Black communities, causing Blacks to leave and find a more hospitable community. It is also possible that economies shifted and as nations became more industrialized, new jobs were created and these jobs were not in casting, and these jobs were not in casting, or the hiring practices discriminated against newly recognized five-fifths people. Either way, it is most likely that the jobs black people were working were no longer available in casting. However, it will remain a mystery because like so much black history, it went unacknowledged at the time. Today, Castine has a black population ranked somewhat lower than the already low average in Maine.
As I walk Emmanuel's perimeter trail lined with sea urchins and pine needles, I look at the remnants of a cistern, gaze across the Bagaduce River, see the sandbar that at low tide connects upper and lower islands. I have just as many questions as before I arrived, stuck in the 21st century with no way to see the past. I hope future visitors leave with an internal, ethereal understanding that it's okay to have questions and that more will be uncovered about this parcel of land. Will this land be accepted as one of the first privately owned ghetto islands of the Down East? Or will this land be uncovered as a refuge? Are Esther and Emmanuel going to provide undeniably visible history the same way that Upper and Lower Negro Island did? Visitors and people looking at a cartographer's work will need to actively uncover the history to know that Esther and Emmanuel Islands are named after the enslaved. Maine Coast Heritage Trust, which owns Emmanuel Island, intends to place a plaque on the island, sharing with visitors the island's history. I don't know if people will see those names and and think, who are they? And, and look it up. But um, part of you know, what we're going to be doing is we'll have some sort of um, interpretive sign out there at the minimum and some sort of language involved with any of our listings of the island. And um, that kind of speaks to process. I'm thankful that the town stepped into their truth, that history is being uncovered and shared, that Black history in Maine is being acknowledged. The islands belong to Maine's coast. So historical inhabitants had to be full of the grit that it takes to be a Mainer. We will get there from here, from the 18th century to the future, from underground railroad folklore to recognition of real black people's lives and labor. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, Look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.